Amen. Have a seat. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? How many of you are here without someone else, without a spouse because they're sick? Just joking, I have to raise your hand, but um, sickness has been going around like crazy. Um, I missed, I was missing one kid t- two weeks ago, another kid last week, and you probably would have been missing me this week if it wasn't the fact that I was preaching. And so um, I'm just going to say this, we're, we're preaching on a really important topic today, something I'm really excited about, but I've been sick all week and didn't sleep and I'm really tired, and that's where Christ does a lot of his best work. Um, Uh, I mean, it's just the reality in our weakness. That's where so often we find our strength. And so today I just want to pray for all of us, for the sickness, for whatever, whatever we brought into the room today, whether that's sickness or something else, that we might walk in the victory of Jesus Christ. We might walk in the freedom of Jesus Christ and not be held or enslaved by anything at all. So I'm going to pray for, for all of us today. And then we'll jump into uh, a text I'm really excited about. Heavenly Father, you are so good and gracious to us. God, your mercy your love, your compassion, your steadfastness, your faithfulness. Um, God, the fact that you're there for us again and again, again, no matter what, by our belief in Jesus Christ, God, is a thing to, to marvel at. And I'm so thankful of this week. God, in our strength or when we are weak, um, God, in the end, it's not about us. It's about you. And I thank you for that. And so, God, I pray for, for all of us today, whether we brought sickness into this room or the, or the sickness of sin or overwhelmed by all the cares of this world and all the things that have, have tried to just crush us or busyness or distraction or, or difficulty or suffering, whatever, whatever we're going through right now that, that we brought into this room today, God, I pray that we could give this, that all of that to you, knowing that you are good in all of those things. There is still hope. There is still joy. There is still peace because we have you. And so, God, I pray as, as I try to have the strength to preach um, with excitement today um, this amazing thing that you have for us. So, God, I pray that you would um, use, use me and my frailty to proclaim your glory and your majesty. And that, again, no matter what we brought in here today, that, that your people would be able to hear it and that we might be able to grow closer to you and know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you don't know me, my name's JT, and I'm one of the pastors here. Tony's our other pastor. He's standing back there walking in with his twins. His other two kids are in his kids, but his twins are, are back there with his wife, Tori. Um, we're so thankful that you're here today. If you have any questions after the service, please come find me, particularly because we are at the end of John. And if you have, have any questions about John, how, where we've got, how we've gotten here so far, please come find me. I'd love to answer any questions that you have. Before we jump into it, um, I'm going to ask you if you recognize who this is. There was once a guy um, who basically had his entire future set for him. Like, I mean, it was just set. He was brilliant, and he came from the right family, and he had all of the right connections, right? Nepotism, all of it. He had all of the right connections, and his, his career path virtually assured that he was going to be set for the rest of his life. It, it, it was just done. He had all the education, all the renown, all of the honor, all of the adulation that came with his growing power, with his growing influence. And this guy left all of it, be, left all of it behind, completely behind, because he found something of more worth. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Paul. Cute guys. You make a pastor proud. Uh, you could have said like, oh, I don't know, Tom Brady when he was on the bench and he came out. Anyway, um, no. Yeah, yeah, especially the Chiefs. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Paul. 
So this spring, if you haven't been with us, we're going to be jumping into the book of Philippians. It's our next big book study. So we're going to talk a lot more about Paul. We're going to get way more into that church and who Paul is and all of those things. But, but the point today, the simple point today is Paul left all of that behind. Why? Well, Paul tells us because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ and so that he might know the power of his resurrection. Isn't that a crazy statement? I don't know if we, any of us ever think of it that way. Surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ, yes, but also so that he might know the power of his resurrection. So where we're just going to start today, I, want, I just want you to think, do I live in the power of the resurrection? Do I think about the power of the resurrection as a thing that defines me, that drives me forward? Um, we're going to talk about that today. Church, we have walked through, and if you haven't been with us, man, we've walked through Jesus' life and his miracles and his teaching. We have seen him arrested and betrayed and tortured. We have seen him go to the cross, and we've seen his very last moments on the cross, right? Right before he death, his death, when he cried out, it is finished. When he, he became the atonement for all sin, for all mankind, for all time, for all who would believe, and brought to, to fruition all of God's plans for the redemption of the world, for anyone who would believe in faith. We've seen all of that come to pass. And then finally last week we saw Jesus buried in the new tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And so today, today we're going to make a transition. Today we're going to make an important transition after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of the slow march of Jesus to the cross and ultimately to his death. We're going to transition away from death to life. And I'm excited about it, right? Away from death to life. For in the end, if you think about it, it's not Jesus' death that is our real hope, but it's his life. That's where our real hope and our joy, and that's where our life really changes in the life. It's the life of Jesus Christ that truly changed Paul, and it's the life of Jesus Christ that changes us. That's what we're going to be diving into today. So here's what I want to do. I want to read the whole passage that we're going to have today. We're going to read it straight through. We're going to talk about it as a whole for a little while, and then we're going to go, we're going to come in and break those down a little bit more. And just so, and if, if anybody's wondering, there are some chairs over here. There's chairs right up like next to the cooks. You guys look great today. I mean, I'd want to sit next to you if, if it was me, um, or you can stay on the bleachers, whatever. I'm just saying there are padded chairs for you all around the room. Okay, so uh, John chapter 20, we're going to start in verse one, and we're going to read through the end of our passage today in verse 10, John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. If you remember, that's throughout John. The one whom Jesus loved is John, the guy who wrote this book, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. 
For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Okay, that's our passage for today. So over the next four or five weeks, we're going to really be diving into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to be really diving into a lot of the implications of it, a lot of like the disciples' reactions to it, a little bit the world's reaction to it, all the implications that go with it. But really this week is just a first glimpse. I don't know if you noticed it, but it doesn't really get into all of those things. It doesn't even actually say for sure, except for at the end kind of, that Jesus has risen. We're just getting the, the first glimpses of it. And so before we spend the next four or five weeks really diving into the resurrection and all those things that I talked about, there's something I just want us to, to see clearly, because without it, without it, the resurrection doesn't fall on us the way that it should. We, we need a little context. We need to make sure we understand because um, at, at our church and really churches across the country that are faithful to the word of God, um, we spend a lot of time talking about the cross, right? We talk about the cross of Christ a lot. And, and listen, we should, right? The Bible tells us that that moment with Jesus on the cross was basically the fruition of all of God's promises, all of God's promises to redeem his people, to bring the Messiah. All those things came together in that moment. It also says that the ultimate glory of God was shown through the cross of Jesus Christ, through Jesus's perfect obedience and God's plan coming to fruition and his glory being shown to the world. And now two billion people believe in Jesus Christ as their savior and God's glory has gone to the ends of the earth. Yes and amen, we should talk about the cross. But without the resurrection... None of that's true. Did you ever think about it that way? Without the resurrection, none of what I just said is true. Without the resurrection, Jesus was just another guy. He was just another guy, another Jew claiming big things, and other Jews before him had claimed big things. Jesus was just another guy that died on, as a curse on a Roman cross like many Jews did before him. If you don't see it, just look at the disciples' reaction to it. After the cross, did the disciples start celebrating and going everywhere and telling everyone about Jesus as their Savior? No, they ran and they hid. And they were afraid. And they felt lost. And, and they didn't really understand. They thought everything was over after the cross. I'm not downplaying the cross. You get that, right? But the cross alone is not enough. Everything hinges on Christ rising from the dead to defeat sin, to defeat death. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He says at one point that, that we, if Christ has not been raised, then we should be pitied among all people. Like, like that we're pitiful if that's not true. But here's the, here's the reality. He has risen. And his resurrection is the vindication of Christ's sacrifice for all of mankind. It vindicated that it really was, and Jesus really was who he says he was, that his perfect life and his teaching and his miracles and his, his atoning death proved nothing less than the fact that Jesus Christ was not only the Messiah of God, but God's own son. So the cross was where the payment was, way, was made. The resurrection is where all things were made new. Do you see the difference there? I'm not saying either one's more important than the other. The cross is where the payment was made, but it's the resurrection where everything was made new. The resurrection is that moment when the, the old covenant law ended, was fulfilled. Its time was done, and it was the beginning of the new time of the new covenant people in Jesus Christ birthed out of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the resurrection really is everything. So as we read it today, as we get our first glimpses into the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I just want us to hear it in the right context. This is not just the, the, the really cool ending to the story. Yeah, Jesus died, but in the end, God got him because you couldn't keep Jesus dead. Well, yeah, amen to that. But it, it's just so much more than a cool ending to the story. The resurrection is everything. And so as we walk through this with the disciples over the next few weeks, I want you just to keep that in your head and your mind. And this is about everything. All right, so with that intro, let's jump back into our text and look at it a little more deeply. Turn back to John chapter 1, or no, not John chapter 1, John chapter 20, and let's look at verse 1 and 2. John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, rolled away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So before the sun even came up on Sunday morning, Mary and probably some of the other women went with Mary to the tomb. And we know from Luke 20 that they were going to lay burial spices. You remember from last time, that's, that was the burial custom. They would bury them with spices, wrap them up with them in oils. Um, it was part of their burial ritual to say goodbye, but also, I mean, just honestly to keep the body from smelling. Well, they would continue to come back over time to put more spices down. So that's, they were heading there to put the spices down on Sunday, the third day. So just in case you've ever wondered, like, Friday, Saturday, like, this is Sunday morning, why is it the third day? It's just the Hebrew way of counting days, right? So if you're in the tomb on any part of Friday, that's one day. You're in the tomb any part on Saturday, that's two days. If you're in the tomb any part of Sunday, that's three days. That's why it's counted as three days. We would, we would probably look at it as 24 hours, but they just, like, he was in the tomb three different days or three days. Which, by the way, do you know that's why we celebrate our Sabbath, our day of worship on Sunday now? It used to be on Saturday, We've been talking about how the Jewish Sabbath was on Saturday. Now Christians started celebrating their, their day of worship, their Sabbath on Sunday, because that's the day that the Lord rose from the dead. So it's pretty cool. It goes all the way back to the time that the tomb was empty. Now, before we really dive into that, there's some things I want to talk about with Mary and, and, and John and Peter. But before we dive into that, we need to address something that you might run into if you spend some time studying this text, maybe in your life group or on your own. Here's the thing. Um, the gospel accounts, when I say the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they differ on how they describe this particular morning. They align pretty almost completely on all other things except this particular morning. And they're not off from each other, but if you read them all straight through, they sound different. They sound like they're coming from a different place. For, for example, um, John only talks about Mary going to the tomb. While a couple of the other gospels, they talk about the women went to the tomb. Does that seem strange to you? That John only mentions Mary, but the other ones mention, mention Mary, but also others that came with her. Now, this one's a little easier. We know from verse 2, if you keep reading, we just read verse 2. She, when she goes to John and Peter to tell them that Jesus is missing, she says, we do not know where they have laid him. Right? So there's the implication there that there was other people with Mary, right? So she says we there. But all of them are not as easy to explain as that one. And so here, here I just want to, to bring you in a little bit on the Hebrew way of thinking. Can we do that just for a second? Because we think in a very Greek way. Do you know what that means? 
Greeks and Hebrews thought completely differently. I've had long conversations with Denver about this. He's the one that kind of opened my eyes to a lot of this, but um, it, it becomes really re- relevant right now. In Western way of thinking, we think like this. A, and then this happens, which equals B, then equals C, then equals D. And we went from A to D, and here's all the steps we took along the way, and here's all the details along the way to, to get to D. Does that make sense? Hebrews don't, they sometimes write that way. They sometimes think that way. But overall, that's not how they wrote. That's not how they think. That Hebrews would write and think. Go back to the Old Testament and read some of the stories where it basically just seems like they say the same thing over and over in different ways. And you don't even realize they're, they're saying the same thing again until later because they, they would talk in a much more circular way. And a lot of times it's not even completely linear. It's not always chronological. At, at, at times it's much less detailed. Sometimes it's super detailed, right? But sometimes much less detailed because their goal is not to take you from A to D. It's for you to simply understand Right, for you to soak in it and to understand the most important points. Not that you know every single detail along the way. It's a very Greek and Western thing, way of thinking that we have to know every little single detail and prove every little step with every little bit of logic that we possibly can. That's a Western way of thinking. That's not really a, a Hebrew way of thinking. Right? Not that they weren't detailed, not that they weren't logical. They just wanted you to understand the points so it would sink deep into you so they would talk in a circular way to get it deep down into you. Does this make sense? We just don't think that way now. So getting from A to D with all of the details in, in between was just not really the point. Let me give you an example of this. Did you know that John, most theologians don't think John was in chronological order? Did you know that? We read it through, and a lot of it is in chronological order, right? We do know this happened, and this happened, and this happened. But there's stories in John, or stories like in Matthew, where they don't necessarily think this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this happened. Because when John was writing the Gospel of John, he wasn't as concerned with getting every little detail and every little chronological order perfect. He was, he was wanting you to understand who Jesus Christ is. And so if he was going to move a story around that matched this other story that really proved the point that Jesus is Lord, then he was just going to do that. Because Jesus being Lord was the most important thing for John, to John for you to understand, not that you got all the details. Is this making sense? This is a Hebrew way of thinking. We're going to see it in just a second in our next part of the passage with with John and Peter. This happens again in this same context. We'll get to that in a second. Now, I will say this too. In all of the gospel accounts, this morning, just this one morning of Jesus' resurrection, um, not everything 100% can be explained away with what I just said. There's some things that are just going to make you, if you really spend time with it, make you go, huh, I wonder why that's different. And I don't want to pretend like all of it's just easily, easy, easily solvable. There's been people arguing about it for 2,000 years, right? But most of it is fairly easy to understand or explain if you see it through a Hebrew lens and not necessarily through a Greek lens. You with me? You have no idea how much more time we could spend on that, but I'm not going to do it today. I just wanted you to understand the point if you're in life groups and you read one account and then you read the other one and everybody's like, uh, what just happened? You'd have some context to understand that. All right, so for John, this perfect example is Mary. It seems for John, it's simply the most important thing is just to, tell, to let us know that Mary was at the tomb early and saw that Jesus wasn't there and that she, because she's the one that came back and told Peter and John that the tomb was empty and that sent them to go check also. Right? Were there other women with Mary? Yeah, there was, because we know from the other gospel accounts. But John, for John, it just wasn't an, impor- an important detail. Mary was there. Mary came and told them. They ran for it. You with me? Okay, so 
Quickly, a couple more points before we move on. Mary comes to them and kind of in fear that Jesus' body was gone. Now, that seems like an obvious thing. Jesus' body is gone. They can't explain it. But the reason this would have been a big fear is grave robbing was a really big deal. Right? Grave robbing happened all the time. So much so that in about 10 years from now, the emperor of Rome, Claudius, um, not only outlawed grave robbing, which it was outlawed, but he made it a capital offense. Right? If you robbed from a grave, you were going to be put to death. That's how bad it was, and that's how seriously they took this. So for her to be afraid that somebody came in and robbed and, and to take the body of Christ or something untoward happened or that maybe the religious leaders came and stole the body, this was a legitimate fear that something really bad had happened. So she kind of comes back really worried. But here's not, that's not even the main point that I want us to get. Here's the main point I want us to get from Mary coming back and telling Peter and John that the tomb is open. It's this, that the original witness of the missing body of Christ was a woman or women. Do you know why that's such a big deal? In that culture, women didn't have any rights. Now, it's hard for us to even imagine it now, right? But in that culture, women didn't even have any rights, right? So much so that even if two women came forth and said they saw something, yeah, we saw this guy murder that guy. Their testimony is not admissible in court. Isn't that insane? That just seems insane to us now. Listen, that's the way the world was then, not just in Jewish culture, but most cultures, right? So at that time, Mary's, Mary's testimony or the women's testimony wouldn't have counted for much of anything, The reason this is such a big point is if you're trying to start a religion, if you're trying to convince people that they need to follow Jesus Christ as Lord because he's been raised from the dead, that he's no longer dead, he's alive, you don't start with the testimony of women. That's not how you would do it at this time in this culture. The only reason you would do it this way is why? Because it's true. That's the only reason you would do it this way. Otherwise, it makes no sense. And you know what I love is because this is what God constantly does, doesn't he? He takes what the world would look at, people the world would look at and say that they're foolish or they're unimportant or they're or powerless people. And he uses them to shame the wise and powerful. He does it constantly to show his power and glory. He doesn't need the powerful. He doesn't need what the world calls wise. God will accomplish what God is going to accomplish. I mean, that's why you see Jesus Christ born to a no-name family from a no-name town in a manger. Because God can take someone like that and and make him, the because he is the Lord of the universe, show the world that through that beginning, the King of kings and the Lord of lords came. It's what God does. So we love it. So they start off with Mary being the first witness along with the other women, but they weren't the only witnesses, just the first ones. It's now Peter and John's turn. Let's go back to verse 3. John chapter 20, verse 3. This time we'll read through verse 7. John 20, verse 3 says this. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, here's why I said this is another example. In the account in Luke of this, it's only Peter that went to the tomb. John's not mentioned. Now, Peter was at the tomb. 
We saw just from right there, Peter was actually the first one that went into the tomb and really saw everything clearly. And Peter became the leader of the early church, right? So it makes sense that the most important person, the person that at least Luke thought was the most important to be clear is that Peter went, Peter saw, Peter went in. Peter's your leader of the church. He witnessed it all. You can follow him. All that makes sense. So that other details weren't included. But John inserts himself into the story, inserts himself, tells people that he was, he was there too also. Now, why do we think John did that? Remember, in John, the disciple that Jesus loved, almost all theologians, no theologian agrees on everything ever. It's so annoying, right? But almost, almost across the board, everybody thinks that the beloved disciple, or when it says the disciple, and doesn't use a name, it's John. If you read the end of chapter 21, he, he finishes the book this way. He doesn't refer to himself, but he's referring to himself. It's just so obvious, right? So we have a, a really good confidence this is John. So why do you think John puts himself into the story when Luke, which was written a long decades before this one was written, why does John put himself into the story now? Well, here's where we have to be really careful. We have to be careful about inserting our own intentions and our own hearts and who we are into stories. And maybe this is just me, but when I read this story, um, I thought through my lens, if I'm, especially if I'm not following Jesus really, really closely, my pride gets in the way, I just want people to know that I got there first, right? That, um, but yeah, we both went and we were both running, but I was a lot faster than Peter and I outran Peter and you're talking about how Peter went in, but I actually looked in first. Did, did you guys miss the fact that I looked in before Peter looked in? Um, that, honestly, that's who I naturally am, right, Carl? I'm competitive and I just want people to know how awesome I am. And only by Jesus Christ am I been humbled and that stuff doesn't matter to me as much. And so that, that's who I am. And that's how I read it. I mean, for goodness sake, I don't know if you noticed in, in these verses, if you add in verse eight, he mentions three times that he beat Peter to the tomb. Isn't that hilarious? Three different times he mentions that he was there first. Now, here's the thing. I don't think that was John's intention at all. Maybe a little bit, maybe it snuck in a little bit. I don't think so. I don't think that was John's intention or what. There's a very there's a very good reason why he included himself in the story and has everything to do with why he wrote this book. But we're going to get there in a second. We're going to get there in a second because I think, I think verse 8 is going to really enlighten us. So there's a couple things I want us to get to first before we really talk about that. Here's one of them. John looks in first and he sees the linens. And then Peter peeks in and sees the same thing. And this was their first indication that something weird was going on. Because the bodies weren't there, but the linens were still there. And the reason that's significant is the linen, those linens were worth a lot of money. Grave wrappings, people would spend a lot of money on those things to wrap their loved ones in. And so if they were robbing the grave, there was nothing else in the tomb. It's a new tomb. They didn't take anything, and the linens were still there. So this is not, as far as they can tell, this is not a grave robbery. So Peter, very much being Peter, who a lot of times is the one who kind of does things without thinking, of course he's the first one who goes in. He's like, I got it. I'll go in. And, and so Peter goes in and he sees not just the empty linens, which again, I want you to notice the linens weren't like thrown everywhere, right? They were laying there as if Jesus might've even maybe even passed through them. I mean, he shows up in a room later that's locked, right? But they're just laying there. He sees the linens just laying there. And then he sees the faith cloth, the face cloth that covered Jesus' face, neatly folded and laid off to the side. Church, I just love this detail. 
I just love it. It's so specific. It's these little things that we sometimes see in these stories that we sometimes see in the story that don't really add anything to the story overall, that don't, that, but it's just these details that are so specific that it makes it, it makes it at least seem like, man, somebody really did witness this. This like really did happen. Why else would you include a detail like that if you're making up a story? But the, the fact they put it in there, it's because the only reason it's in there is because that's what really happened. He walked in there and the face cloth wasn't just cast to the side or it was neatly folded and set off to the side. I just think that's awesome. It just gives evidence to me that the fact that this is a very real account of something that actually happened. But it's more than that. There's something more important than that. If you remember the story in John 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, in the raising of the dead, that was really a foreshadowing of what he was going to do in himself, what Christ was going to do. Lazarus was also in a tomb. He would, he'd been wrapped up. He'd been, he'd been dead for a while. And then Jesus commands him, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? He did come out. He just got up and walked out. And Lazarus was now alive. But when he came out of the tomb, if you remember, he was still wrapped in his death shroud. He was still wrapped in his, in his grave linens. And, uh, and, and it, just, it just points to something for me that, that Lazarus was set free from death, right? He was raised from the dead, but there, his, his death clothing, death was still kind of clinging to him as he came out. Is that the case for Jesus Christ? No, I, you just picture this. I don't know if John meant this as symbolism or not, but Jesus Christ is completely different. He left it all behind. He left death completely behind. His grave clothes are laying there. The face cloth is laying there. He took death and he just set it aside. Because that's what Jesus Christ has done. He is free of the trappings of death and they can no longer hold any sway over him at all. He experienced death for all of us. He conquered death for us and then he set it aside so that we could know and that we could believe it'll never have any sway over him ever again. And if we believe in him, it won't have sway over us either. Church, this is the good news of the gospel. This is really where it all comes to fruition. Not just that our sins have been forgiven. Yes and amen to that. Praise God for that. But when it comes to the fear of death, when it comes to, honestly, the terror of eternal, eternal death separated from God in hell, Jesus has conquered that fear for us. And I don't know if you live free of that fear in Jesus Christ, but listen, Christian, you should live without the fear of death in your life anymore because Jesus Christ has conquered it. This is why Jesus Christ called himself the resurrection and the life. Do you remember when he said that in John, that he's the resurrection and the life? He is not just primarily the Savior that conquered death, but the Messiah who came to give us life. John constantly contrasts these things from death to life. Stop only focusing on the fact that, that Christ conquered death for you. He did, yes and amen. But if you always focus on that, you just, oh, you're always kind of trapped in the fact that, well, yeah, I'm still kind of walking in that death. I'm still kind of walking my sin. And I know Jesus conquered that for me. And I know I'm not supposed to be afraid. Um, so yeah, I mean, he did die for me. But no, he came to give you so much more than just conquering death for you, conquering sin. He came to give you life. And as it says in John 15, to give you life abundantly so that you might have his joy. Which leads to the reason that I believe John included himself in this part of the story when the other gospel writers didn't. Look at verse 8. John chapter 20, verse 8, and we'll finish off our passage. 
in verse 10. John chapter 20, verse 8 says this. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John, who once again reminds us that he was there first, just saying one more time, he's got to let us know, tells us what I think is the reason that he included himself in this story in the first place. When he saw the linens, when he saw the face cloth folded and set aside, John believed. John believed. He might not have had full understanding of everything yet. I don't think he did. Because in verse 9, it says, none of them fully understood yet how Jesus' resurrection fulfilled Scripture. In Luke 24, 14, it says that Peter marveled at what was happening, but not that he understood what was happening. But here's what I think. I think John was beginning to. Do you remember what we've been telling you for this whole series, why John wrote this book? It's at the end of this chapter. We're finally there, right? We're almost there. At the end of this chapter, he tells us why he wrote this whole, this whole book, so that you might know and believe. That's why we name this series, to know and believe. John wants us to believe. And I think what John is showing us here is that he had to go on the same journey of belief. He had to walk through it himself. He doesn't fully understand yet. John's not ready to go out and start proclaiming to everyone that Jesus is the risen Messiah yet. But listen, John was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. John knows exactly what is possible in Jesus Christ because he's seen it and he's experienced it and he witnessed it. And when John saw Jesus' death clothes lying there, he didn't think someone had stolen his Savior's body but that his Savior simpler, simply no longer needed his death clothes because he had set death aside. And you know what? John saw all of this, and he believed. And that's why he put, I think he put himself into this story, because he wanted us to see that all of this is so that we might believe. To see all that God has done and accomplished and believe. And then I kind of love how the passage ends today. They all just went home. It's kind of crazy, right? Like all of that, and then they all went home. And it's funny to say that I kind of love how the passage in, ends, but they saw this crazy thing. They didn't really know what's going on, so they just went home. You know why I love it? Because it's all of us. It's, it's just all of us. The, listen, these men and women are us. They're not heroes. Sometimes we look at, at Peter and John and Mary and all the other people that fall around as like heroes of Scripture. And in some ways they are. But here, here's the fact. that They were confused and they were scared and they were lost and they ran and they did exactly what the rest of us would have done. They did exactly what the rest of us would have done. They're not the heroes of this story. There is only one hero in this story. One hero we look to. One hero who couldn't be stopped by a Roman cross. One hero that couldn't be stopped by all of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. One hero that couldn't even be stopped by death itself. Couldn't be stopped even though hell threw itself at him, our risen Christ. He's the hero. He's the one we look to. 
Do you know why it's so comforting for people like you and me? Because sometimes we feel like we need to be perfect, that we should be this thing, that we should have arrived. Look at the disciples. Look at everyone else who didn't know what was going on. There's only one hero. Take your focus off you and all the things that you should think you should be. Look who Christ is and just strive to be more like him. That's where your joy is found. That's where your hope is found. That's why the new life is so important. Stop focusing on sin and death. Yes, kill your sin. Yes, take it serious. Yes, put it to death. Yes, confess it. Yes, bring it out into light. But then move forward to new life in Jesus Christ. That is the resurrection power. That is what John wants us to believe and to hold on to so that we might actually move forward. The fact that he has raised you to new life right now, a life of joy and fulfillment and purpose in him, and then the hope that you will be raised again to eternal glory with him. I don't have the energy for this. I'm too sick. I can't help myself. I'm going to fall over. In 1 Peter 1, 1 through 1, 3 through 4, Peter says this about the resurrection. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exclamation point. I need to say that more excited. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living hope that we are alive in Christ right now and that our Savior is not dead. He is living. He is sitting at the right hand of God. He is our living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I just love that passage. And it's so hard to actually hold on to and find your hope in. Oh, but it's so good. Church, because of Christ, because your Savior is not dead, but he is alive, we live in hope. We live in hope. Like real hope, the hope that one day we're going to leave all this death and all this sin, we're going to leave it all behind, and we're going to give up these perishable bodies for imperishable ones. We're going to give up these defiled bodies, these bodies that have been defiled by sin and everything else of this world. We're going to give up these defiled bodies for undefiled ones. We're going to give up our bodies that fade with time that have gray hair and start to get saggy in some places, right? We're going to leave these bodies that fade with time to have a heavenly body like Christ's heavenly body that will never fade again. A resurrection body that reflects the power and the glory of a resurrected Christ. Man, do we live in the truth of that. It's, it's hard to, isn't it? But how, how good is that? How good are these promises? We are born again in that hope right now. Yes and amen. But our true hope is in the day that we will leave fear and sin and death behind forevermore and live in the presence and the glory of the one who says he is promising us pleasures and joy forevermore. Listen, that's heaven. Pleasures and joy forevermore. Not floating on a cloud, but spending time with God, spending time with Christ, and spending time with the family of God and pleasures forevermore. Joy forevermore. This is why Paul could say to live is Christ, to live for Christ every day in the joy of who he is, but to die is gain. To die is gain The resurrection is our evidence, it is our truth, it is our hope of that reality. Church, let's live our lives in the joy of who our God is and what he has actually done for us and through the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, live in the hope of what he's promising us forevermore. Amen?
Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how oh, you are so good to us. You're so good to us. Your word to us would be enough to show us just how good you are to us. But it's not just your word so that we might know you and be able to follow you. You sent your own son to not only die on the cross, to pay for all of our sins that we could be forgiven and saved, but then raised him from the dead so that we might follow him in that resurrection. Born again, raised to new life in him so that we might walk out of the slavery of sin and the fear of death into the joy, into the hope, and the truth of following our Savior. And so, God, today, I just pray that you would help us all live in that hope, live in that joy, live in that truth. God, it's so hard to live in the light of eternity. It feels so far away, but for some of us, it's not that far away. It could be tomorrow. God, help us to live in the joy that, that all of this one day, all the fear, all the pain, all of the suffering, all of it will be gone, and we'll have our resurrected bodies with Jesus along with you, our resurrected King, and have joy forevermore. Jesus, thank you for coming and dying and then raising so that we know that our Savior is alive and that he knows us and he's for us. God, help us to trust you, to lean on you, to find our strength in you, and to find our hope in you because of the power of your resurrection. God, we thank you today. We worship you today. We love you today. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Church, if you need.